This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. I'm Erin Straza and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, a guide to reading and reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and see all the other classics in that series. We're just kicking off this new series called What We Make of Ourselves, and week by week, we are going to work our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We'll be identifying how the themes in this 19th century classic have a whole bunch to say about life for us in the 21st century. Now, Hannah, since our intro conversation last week, I've been thinking about that book shame Topic that we covered a little bit, how we feel guilty for not being well-read or even for enjoying books that aren't deemed intellectual enough. So that's been on my mind. And it reminded me of the Twitter thread that you had last month mm-hmm. about this. And a whole bunch of people chimed in and, and agreed that they felt the same thing. Absolutely. I think it hit a pain, pain point. Maybe a nerve, maybe it invited vulnerability, I don't know. But I think a lot of us experience this sense of, wow, I should have read this or I should have enjoyed this. And and I'll be perfectly frank. I am really looking forward to Frankenstein, reading it um, just so I can check it off my list. Not just, oh, but I'm really excited to have another one on my list and be like, oh, yeah, I've read that. I've read and that classic, yes. make some comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's ridiculous, but you know it's it's part of the benefit yes, of yes. finally sitting down and reading something that you're like, oh, I've been meaning to get around to that. There was something else in that thread. Someone had mentioned this book called How to Read a Book by Adler Mortimer, which I had not heard of that. And I was curious. So as I do, I went right on out and ordered it. But when I ordered his book, which I have not read yet, but I ordered it and now I have it, I also saw a children's book by Kwame Alexander, who was at the last Festival of Faith and Writing. And so I was familiar with him and his writing from that. And he also has a book with the same title, How to Read a Book, but it was a children's book, so more like a picture picture book. And I received that, and I have read that. And not only is it lovely in terms of its presentation because the illustrations are so great. But his approach to the topic I really appreciated because it was very much read to explore and to enjoy and 
part of that is you will learn new things, but it was much more about the experience of reading and how it brightens your perspective and enlarges your world. So I really, really enjoyed that book. I think what is really underneath that question, how to read a book, to be honest, is why we read. Yes. Um, Because even asking the question about book shame, we're, we're kind of revealing our motivations sometimes that we're reading for other people. Oh, yeah. We're kind of reading, looking over our shoulder. We're reading to say, um, you know, I am cultivated. I am intellectual. I am keeping up with everyone else. And and that's not to say there isn't like a body of literature that that we want to explore and, and allow changes. But the question isn't just how to read a book or what books have you read, but why do we read? Uh, mm-hmm. What is the point of entering into these worlds and to these ideas? And and that's a question I think that I'm much more curious about is like, why do we even engage in this? This seems to be fitting for the title of this episode, what we make of ourselves and really the title of our whole series, because I do think that reading makes us, it does shape us, it does influence how we think or what we think because it enlarges what we know. And one of the things that I have found interesting is that often, I think Christians in particular are concerned about what we read and how we read. And and some of that I, I get because there is a sense of wanting to cultivate things of faith and things that are um, gospel Bible driven versus, let's say, philosophical ideas that may not line up and help you to pursue Christ. So I get that. Um, but I also think that there's an underlying fear of, well, what are you reading and what will that lead you to think? And, and the concern of that. And I think that when I read books that are, let's say, classics or books that aren't written from a Christian author's perspective, what I find is that I need to do a bit more work there and see which notions maybe capture my fancy when they do stray or pull me away from faith, where I'm rooted in faith. And really, I just need to do a bit more work there and think it through, which really is what we try to do here on Persuasion. So I I think that that connection of let's be deep thinkers and deep processors, I'm not saying there's just a free-for-all, read whatever you want to read, but I do think that it widens it and, and eliminates some of that fear of what is it that you're taking in and will it take you captive away from Christ? Right. So so we're to be engaged readers. We're not yes. to just be passively receiving. We're to be engaged. And and it makes me think this tension between how we approach books, why we read, um, reminds me of something I've been talking with my kids about lately. I don't, I, I this is not unique with me, but for the life of me, I cannot remember where I first saw it. Um, it was the tension between um, making yourself an interesting person and being an interested person. Oh, I love that so distinction. So the interesting person is the person who I am well cultivated. I am well read. I am the most interesting man in the world, right? <laughs> yes, those commercials. <laughs> Versus the interested person who is curious and engaged. 
And it's not so much about how much you've read or what books you can talk about so much as how are you approaching the process? Are you a person that's coming with curiosity and Mm -hmm. engagement and you're ready to um, interact with life, um, in this case with books, rather than just kind of um, using cultural artifacts as a tally for whether you're an interesting person? And I think that's particularly important when we're talking about books, because so often we can think we have, we know something, right? We can Mm -hmm. think we have a story or we can be like, oh, yes, I can tick that off my list. When what we really have is just the um, cultural adaptation or reference, the, the kind of summary of the story. We have the Cliff Notes version of the story and it hasn't actually changed us because because all we have taken in was the the details mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those details aren't even accurate, but right. we don't know it. And then it's revealed how little we don't know. <laughs> how little we know, sorry. Uh, I agree with that, Hannah. The curiosity factor, I feel like this is that approach of being a learner and being willing to say what we don't know. And with this book in particular, I feel such freedom because I have not read it. And I. this is a genre that I just am not drawn to. So as I dug in a little bit thinking about these cultural references, like you've said, cultural references to Frankenstein, there are so many. And even those, it's like, yeah, I kind of know them. Um, but I I haven't watched a lot of these types of films. And so I am such a learner. I know nothing. And so even as I looked at what where are these markers in our culture? How did Frankenstein become what we think it is today? There were so many things. It's like, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember that, but I haven't seen it. Like the classic 1930s Frankenstein, you know, the character with the bolts in his neck. And green there's skin. that one. Yeah. Yes, the green skin and the, you know, the the plastered hair. I mean, just that iconic figure and character but then that continued in other films um i guess there was this whole comic book series with frankenstein again i'm not a comic reader so there again i don't know about that but they are the ones who first i the what i read is that they first wrongly named the monster frankenstein and that's how it stuck and so there was this whole monster series in comics, but then even in current film, this, this theme has continued. Um, even if you think of the 60s TV series, The Monsters, that I didn't realize right. that was in the 60s. And it's like, I don't know that I watched a ton of that, obviously in reruns, but it's more like, yes, I vaguely remember it, but I don't know that I watched it enough to really even remember the storylines of it. And so there are all these pinpoints in culture where the story has continued and and been brought along. I think in modern day, like today, we've had film and TV series that play on the ideas of Frankenstein, where there's this um, kind of like this mishmash of human and non-human form together, creating a character, creating a new type of being. And, And that even relates to AI. So there are all sorts of references here and how Frankenstein has really shaped us and has led to what we know today with some of our um, sci-fi films and TV shows. 
Right. And I think what's so fascinating, and this just kind of exemplifies it, is there's this whole genre and there's this whole cultural knowledge mm-hmm. that really has very little to do with the actual story, yeah, or the actual myth, and how <laughs> things can know. grow beyond <laughs> themselves. And, you know, it's fascinating to me is having gotten into the book, kind of done some research and background, uh, the original is so fascinating. Like to me, reading in the background and the story, I am just kind of disappointed I hadn't read it before now. Me too. Because <laughs> what was being presented to me culturally, I was like, oh, that's that that's not something I would give my time to. Mm-hmm. Or even I didn't understand that it was this philosophical work. Right. Yes, I had no idea. I really thought, I think I had mentioned this in the introduction, that I thought this was just horror. There's this monster and he's coming after you to get you. That's that's all I thought it was. And yet there's so much more to it, which is why I've really appreciated digging into the background material that's available in this um, reading guide, the, the B&H version of uh, Frankenstein. I, I All of that material has been so helpful. And I've gone down so many rabbit trails online just to find yes. out more because there's just so interesting. So for those of you who haven't gotten your copy yet, or um, maybe you're reading from a different copy, the, the introduction in the B&H uh, version is fascinating. And um, Dr. Pryor has just done us a service in putting mm-hmm. all this information in one place, because once you kind of know the background of this story, it, re- it changes how you enter into it. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that's just brilliant about this book, and I, and I have so much respect for. If I had seen the cultural adaptation of Frankenstein, I would have thought, this is written by some bro dude, you know, <laughs> this is someone who's got a weird imagination, <laughs> they play video games in their basement, or whatever the right, right. 19th century counterpart to that was. <laughs> turns out it was written by a 19-year-old woman and published Unreal. when she was 21. So it was written by Mary Wollstone. It was written by Mary Shelley, who was, interestingly enough, um, married to Percy Bysshe Shelley. You might know that name, um, a romantic poet who is a little bit of... Uh, a wild child along mm-hmm. with his friend Lord Byron. Uh, wonderful poetry, but the kind of stuff that it took to get that poetry is kind of bizarre. Really so is. so she's married to this really famous figure, but she's also the daughter of really famous people. So she was the daughter of William Godwin, who was a radical political philosopher, and of Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a proto-feminist writer. And they didn't even get married until she was born because they were so anti-establishment. So Mary Shelley grows up basically like in this hippie artisan community. Right. Like you didn't know way. that hippies were before yeah. the 60s. And then she marries super young. Uh, she marries Percy Shelley super young, I think like at 16. And they run off to the continent together and are just traipsing around Europe as part of this artisan set. And they were really marked by sexual freedom and experimentation. And at 19, she writes Frankenstein, which honestly, in many ways, challenges that. Um, it's it's just brilliant. Like, I have so much respect for a 19-year-old woman who could who'd write this, especially in context of 
um, mothering, having children, and, and all these other things that were going on around her. I was amazed that a 19-year-old could produce this sort of work. So I, I feel like there are a couple of things going on here. I think there is credit to her her parents and their creativity and obviously how they influenced her and and provided education and opportunity for her just just sort of this world i guess where ideas and and writing were all part of it so i think there's that aspect but i do think there's something um within her as an artist where she felt free to go off with Percy and they went all over <laughs> Europe. And I mean, that's yeah, very like we're young. We're not advising Just, this as a creative path. No, it's unreal. I mean, this is unusual today. Very unusual. <laughs> and so... To, like, this is the margins of society. Okay? Right. But right. it produces a, a fascinating commentary. It really does. On the human experience. And in some of it, too, you have to situate. It's not just Mary Shelley's personal context. It's the broader context and yes. time and place. And so she was writing early, early 19th century. Um, the first version of Frankenstein released in 1818 when she was 21. And that's the version we're reading. Um, just a heads up, if you're getting your own copy, it needs to be an 1818 version. It was re-released about 20 years later. Um, and Or not quite 20 years later, but it was re-released um, and it's slightly is laid out slightly different. Mm -hmm. So the 1818 version. But but what's fascinating is the context in which she was writing was both this romanticism, this, this emphasis on romanticism, but it was burgeoning um, scientific experimentation. Mm -hmm. So some people credit this book as being the first science fiction novel that she used science as part of her plot. Um, and it was not just magic. It wasn't these things were happening because of conjuring. It wasn't horror because of something that was otherworldly. It was something that could happen. You know, this question of could this happen through science? And it, it, it it's really a fascinating context for this to emerge. Even the the situation and timing of when it was written and where it was written, I think that there are lots of things that we should bring up with that. And you mentioned we're talking the romanticism and, and the beginnings of that, but just prior to that was Age of Reason Enlightenment. And so all of that was feeding into how romanticism then came out of that era. And so that age of enlightenment, this is the whole thing, like you mentioned, hippie ideals. So we're talking about everyone's questioning authority and there have there has been upheaval and revolution in France and in the United States just before that in the late 1700s. And so there are all these things going on that created this environment of change and upheaval and questioning. And it produced then, like you said, all this experimentation, but that does shape the mindset and it shapes how you think and therefore it shapes how she wrote. And so I think that the time period is um, is indicative of 
how she was thinking, but I also saw parallels to her own upbringing that she had so much upheaval. So I feel like her life had a lot of upheaval, but even the world and everything the world was going through, there was upheaval there. So I think there are tie-ins and we need to know that as we process this story. Reading this kind of background material and introduction before you go into a novel is it can be really helpful. I think it, it helps you understand the context, as you're saying, the, the reasons why the questions are framed the way they are. Mm-hmm. But it also presents this other question that I've seen a lot of people wrestling with is what exactly is the connection between the artist's life and background and context and the work itself? Um, how much can you read into it? How much can you think the work is revealing an artist's kind of subconscious? Like what what is the relationship between the person, the creator and the thing created? And that's actually one of the underlying questions of Frankenstein. But but it's fascinating that Shelley, like from the beginning in, in the preface to Frankenstein, she almost wants to tell people, don't read too much into this. <laughs> this is a quote from the preface. The opinions which naturally spring from the character and situation of the hero are by no means to be conceived as existing always in my own conviction, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind. <laughs> so so she's got like this disclaimer stamped on right. it first. Don't think that this is what I think. But but I almost I'm not sure if that's possible. Right. Because she is thinking as she's writing, like there is something she's pulling together. Is she is she trying to alert us that she's not espousing these things as the way to think? It's just a way that's that people think. And so therefore, she's writing about it. Um, even so, I think that even if you are providing commentary on what those people out there may be thinking, you are going to frame it in a way for how you see it. It's your perspective and how you frame ideas and develop stories out of them. So that's very curious. Right, because even what you select to include or not to include yes. or, or what stories you choose to tell or how to frame it um, does come out of who you are. And, and that really presents the question that I see happening a lot, especially now in this moment on social media, is how do you relate to a work of an artist who is problematic or has a problematic um, personal life. Um, How can you separate these two things? Does one condemn the other? And I recently saw this discussion come up um, around David Foster Wallace, and uh, there's been a new um, memoir release that talks about relationship with him and basically was like, so he was a jerk, but I saw a lot of people responding to that saying, yeah, we knew that. We read his books. <laughs> so you could discern it from his like, writing. We saw how he talks about women. And it wasn't just like he was talking about other people talking about women. Like there was a way that he framed conversations mm-hmm. and commentary that wasn't a surprise when someone came along and said, yeah, so he treated people like that in real life or according to her. 
at least. Yeah, not shockingly. Yeah, and, 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 and this is very similar to what we are seeing with the, the interest level in the CT podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We're talking about Mark Driscoll as a pastor and how his personality and his approach to things was very strong and domineering. And for quite some time, people thought that was fine until it was revealed that these the way that he went about things actually is detrimental. And how do you reconcile what we think God has been doing in the midst of this person who's really a, a jerk, like you said, like he's it's just he's not behaving in a way that that exemplifies Christianity and Christ, and yet things were still happening that were good. Like, what do you do with that? Mm. Like, how do you understand the work, whether it's yes. the church or a book? Or mm-hmm. um, I've seen it come up in conversation re- recently about Jonathan Edwards and his theology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Edwards is a premier um, American theologian, probably one of the first to be really produced from the Americas, and yet he owned slaves and didn't see that as inconsistent with his theology um, in the least, perhaps. And so the question is, how can we reconcile this? How can we um, understand this person who we all know is going to be flawed um, because we all are. But yet, how much is that going to affect his work? Should we be coming to his work right. saying, oh, we can't use it? Or we're looking for the subtext. Um, and one of the best ways that I've uh, seen this question framed is the difference between excusing a writer's faults and explaining their faults. Like, are we talking about the relationship because we want the dilemma to go away. And so we're going to mm-hmm. excuse and cover up and, and and say, actually, we can still use this book and it has no bearing on, you know, whatever. Or do we see that information as giving us more information by which to interpret the work, yes. not to read into it, but to help explain why is it framed this way or what could possibly be um, happening here in this moment? And obviously, we don't want to read back onto people just because we've read one thing that they've written, that we assume that one thing carries everything that is to be known about them. At best, it might reveal something about them in that moment. Yes. Yeah. But people are, you know, highly layered and complicated and they adapt and they change. But I do think there is some way we can understand why these questions why this way? Why this explanation? Um, and having the author's background and more knowledge about their context really does change your interpretation of the book. And, and I, th- I thought it was very helpful, particularly with starting Frankenstein, knowing Mary Shelley's context, knowing yes. the artisan community in which she existed, knowing this tension between ration and emotion between the age of enlightenment science and reason and um romanticism mm-hmm. i mean it was everywhere i could see it everywhere as soon as i, I had too. that frame of reference one note that i had from dr Pryor's uh, introduction to the work helped me this this these two lines, two or three lines, really helped me to think about 
how this book was written and the person who was creating it. Here's this quote. Mary's life was haunted by death, and not just any kind of death, but death connected to the act of creation. Her mother died from complications giving birth to her. She saw all but one of her children die, and she almost died during her last pregnancy. There were all these moments of death that shaped who Mary is, and that shaping explains why she was able to produce this work. And one of the things that I really am appreciating about this read is that having this context and understanding her, it it almost like it sparks more ideas and questions than if I were just reading it as a story disconnected from than from life. Um, it is fiction, and yet it is created by real people, and so, by a real person. And, and there were people in her life and in her orbit that contributed to what she thought and the ideas she had, her creativity. And it's made me more curious. So it comes back to that learner part. I just am so fascinated. And um, it's giving me a richer reading experience. Yeah, and one example of what you're describing, and it explains why we entitled this series What We Make of Ourselves, is that Mary Shelley herself, in the um, preface to the second edition, talked about writing this book, Frankenstein, almost as a way to test or to prove herself. Mm-hmm. And and that came from, the way she put it, it's just a little bit of slight pressure from her husband, um, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was basically saying, hey, you're the daughter of these really gifted, famous people. Let's see what you've got. <laughs> Let's. It, it wasn't necessarily a command performance, you know, like go perform. It was, let's just test this. Let's, let's see what you can make of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so even that theme of family of origin directing us towards certain paths, our origins, um, what, what level of ambition should we have? Um, how does this all relate to our autonomy? What, what can we make of ourselves? What is this tension between nature and nurture? And what does it mean to create something um, and then to be responsible for it? And, mm-hmm. and particularly, you know, within the book, it's the creation of um, the, the monster that mm-hmm. Victor Frankenstein creates. But it's also our own works. It's what relationship do we have to the things we create, whether it's books or music or even families? Um, And so this idea of Mary Shelley even writing this book as a test to ask the question, what am I going to make of myself, kind of is, it it sets uh, the frame of the entire book. And and you'll see these themes as you begin to read. Look for these themes, um, origins, nature and nurture, um, unbridled ambition, grief and sorrow, um, autonomy individual moral agency, the relationship um, between our guilt and the relationship between creator and creation. And so those are just some things we'll have a chance to kind of expand later. But as you're beginning to read, these are the things that you want to look for um, through the scope of the book. Just a few things. (laughs) Just a few things. 
as as we were making notes for this, I just thought, well, what other theme can we toss in here? Because they're all here. It's all here. How did she do this at 19? It's amazing. And so it it really does jump out at you, though, as you're reading. You see these phrases that are being used. There are similar phrases that talk about adventure or experiment or expeditions and things or like glory. that. And, yes. And mm-hmm. it, there's just so much with that. It's like, oh, here's a theme. Oh, here's another one. Oh, and you you just start to see how layered this story is and how brilliantly it's written because it's not unfolding like a typical story. It's not just a straight start to finish one voice narration. It is actually something that is a a, a series of letters with a story within the letters. And so um, there are different voices and different speakers. So that's another thing to take note of as you dive into this book, if you've never read it before. There there will be some different perspectives coming into play depending on who's telling that part of the story. Right. You use the word layers. It is layered thematically and it mm. is layered structurally. And one of the things that's most fascinating about this book is it is a frame novel, which basically means it's um, speakers telling stories to other people who are telling stories to other people who are selling stories to other people. (laughs) And one of the images that I took from it was like nesting dolls. So that that you've you've Mm -hmm. got these, um, you know, different speakers speaking to other people who are then retelling the story to someone else. Another way to think of it is like brackets within brackets within brackets Um, so that the book opens um, with a man named Robert Walton writing a letter to his sister, Margaret, and he's retelling to Margaret a story that he has heard from Victor Frankenstein who about halfway through the book will be retelling a story that the monster has told him who will be retelling. And it just kind of goes <laughs> on like that. So um, as you begin to read, realize that that's the structure of the book. You're coming into the story partway. Um, and the the letters and the conversations kind of unfold it from inside out. It's like the literary version of flashbacks yes. <laughs> told through different eyes. And yeah. so really very well constructed and um, just genius level. It's brilliant. I, I found it to be um, an enjoyable read. You really get into the pattern and the rhythm of it, especially with the telling of these letters and bits and pieces. And so um, I, I'm really looking forward to continuing on with the reading and discussing it. Oh, just so everybody knows, the the first discussion for um, the reading will be in our next episode. So if you want to read and be prepared, the first reading is going to be uh, volume one, and it'll be the preface through chapter three. And um, try to get that read ahead of time if you'd like. Otherwise, the conversation, we will be sure to summarize that reading within the episode and then talk about some of the themes and and how they relate to life today. So you don't have to do the reading, but if you are, that's what we're going to discuss the next time. And the reading schedule's online to do too. The reading. You don't have to do the reading, but if someone asks you, have you ever read Frankenstein? What are you going to say? And so it'd be great if but you did, because the then reading. you don't have it's, shame it's, about it. Do the it, it really is good. It's been enjoyable. It is. And it carries you along. And it, you know, it is a slightly... 
um, older style of writing mm-hmm. written in 1818. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it carries itself. And I think it um, definitely is a classic for a reason. Well, if you don't have a copy of Frankenstein yet, uh, consider the one from B&H Publishing. I will have the link to that in the show notes so you can pop out straight from there and check it out. Um, but yes, start start reading and get ready because next episode we're diving in. Well, I am looking forward to it. And as always, we are looking forward to your voices coming alongside ours. Um, As you begin to read, or if you have thoughts on this episode, please join us um, on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC. Let us know what you're thinking about this series and the book itself. As always, if you're part of the Christ Pop Culture Members Forum, we'll have a dedicated thread there uh, for the next few weeks discussing Frankenstein and all things related. If you're not a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support Uh, this work on Persuasion Podcast, as well as all of the other conversations and articles that are happening at Christ in Pop Culture. We want to give Jonathan Clausen a shout out. He's the producer for Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture podcast network. You can find those at ChristandPopCulture.com or go to iTunes and search for Christ and Pop Culture and all of them will pop up right there for you to listen to. Thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.